proper assessment and treatment of acute respiratory distress. Management of acute respiratory distress isn't an exact science. Good patient outcomes rely on your ability to assess ventilation, oxygenation, work of breathing, WOB, lung function, airway resistance, and airflow. The number of treatment choices is increasing and they're becoming more complex. Does your patient need medication, suctioning, airway management, ventilation, intubation, non-invasive ventilation, or just close observation? Some practices of the past served only to disguise deterioration. With everything available to today's EMS provider, you need some pearls of wisdom for effectively assessing and successfully treating patients having difficulty breathing. Shortness of breath, or dyspnea, is a subjective complaint. As with any subjective complaint, an EMS provider risks undervaluing the significance of the problem if they allow personal bias to interfere with a good search for objective signs of respiratory distress. Studies have repeatedly demonstrated that EMS providers undertreat pain largely because of underassessment. Patients rarely die of pain, but they often die from acute respiratory distress. Thus, a rapid and thorough assessment is crucial. Complaints of dyspnea account for a significant number of EMS responses. Attempts to stratify the significance of respiratory distress by emergency medical dispatch EMD protocols have been largely unsuccessful, leaving most EMD protocols to triage patients with breathing problems into a high-priority response. Besides ineffective breathing or respiratory arrest, which are suggested through information volunteered by 911 callers, some objective assessment clues can often be obtained by 911 operators. These include difficulty speaking between breaths and the presence of cyanosis and diaphoresis, each of which are objective and significant assessment findings. Although any dispatch for difficulty breathing could be serious, the presence of these findings certainly raises the index of suspicion. Imminent respiratory arrest. Immediate assessment priorities for any difficulty breathing call include quickly determining if the patient has a febrile illness, most effectively done by asking the patient if they feel feverish. Fever in any patient with respiratory distress compels you to provide the patient with a simple surgical mask. After assuring that the scene is safe and conducting an immediate assessment for adequate circulation, airway, and breathing, CAB, you can begin to focus on dyspnea. The mask allows you to work safely in the three-foot respiratory hot zone around the patient. Crews can also don a mask for additional protection. Three signs that suggest imminent respiratory arrest in a patient with acute respiratory distress are 1. Decreased level of consciousness, 2. Inability to maintain respiratory effort, and 3. Cyanosis. Presence of one or more of these warrants immediate intervention because untreated respiratory arrest will lead to cardiac arrest in very short order. Immediate life-threatening conditions associated with complaints of dyspnea include foreign body airway obstruction, acute coronary syndrome, acute heart failure, major arrhythmias, tamponade, massive pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, asthma, anaphylaxis, poisoning, and trauma, all of which would be treated during the initial assessment. Assessing Work of Breathing, WOB. For dyspneic patients without immediate life threats, 
Your next assessment focus should be to determine the patient's work of breathing. Assessing work of breathing is a challenging process that improves with practice and experience. EMS requires multitasking depending on the personnel and resources available. Simultaneously, having other crew members measure pulse oximetry and capnography if available, while others obtain a history and demographics from family or friends, will accelerate your assessment process and allow you to more quickly formulate a treatment plan. Five key signs you want to look for that suggest severe respiratory distress include 1. Retractions and the use of accessory muscles to breathe. 2. Inability to speak full sentences or difficulty speaking in between breaths. 3. Inability to lie flat. 4. Extreme diaphoresis. and 5. Restlessness, agitation, or declining level of consciousness. Each of these signs is closely tied to worker breathing and suggests the patient is working too hard to breathe. When WOB is significantly elevated for prolonged periods of time, patients tire and become unable to sustain an adequate respiratory effort. The only way to discover retractions is to visualize the chest. The presence or absence of retractions can tell more about the degree of respiratory distress than lung sounds. Surprisingly, in the rush to examine patients, there's a tendency not to take a quick peek under their clothing at the anterior and posterior chest walls. Learn to recognize retractions and accessory muscle use. If you're unfamiliar with what these look like in an actual patient, a quick internet search will teach you to rapidly recognize both. The ability to speak is also directly related to the degree of distress. This often necessitates obtaining history from family or friends because patients with severe respiratory distress will often only be able to provide one or two word answers to questions. Orthopnea, or the inability to lie flat, is not a test, but rather a question to ask the patient. Sweating and particularly profuse diaphoresis in an environment where others are not sweating suggest significant distress. Although we're quick to correlate declining level of consciousness with imminent respiratory arrest, we can be fooled by patients who are extremely restless and perhaps progress to combativeness. These behaviors in the presence of acute dyspnea are highly suggestive of severe respiratory distress. Valuable Vital Signs Two BLS vital sign measurements that are helpful in assessing and monitoring the degree of respiratory distress are respiratory rate and oxygen saturation. Tachypnea in adults is generally defined as a respiratory rate greater than 25 breaths per minute. The higher the respiratory rate, the greater the work of breathing, and the more likely the patient will eventually tire. Trending respiratory rates over time can let you know the effects of treatments by suggesting improvement or deterioration. For those responsible for patient care, be wary of respiratory rates measured by others. Studies of healthcare providers at all levels suggest that reported respiratory rates may not be accurate. Just as physicians are instructed when making treatment decisions to count respirations themselves, use a capnographic device or have a trusted partner make the assessment for you. Many healthcare providers are quick to attribute rapid respiration rates to anxiety, i.e. acute onset anxiety or hyperventilation syndrome. This is a slippery slope and can quickly land a clinician in trouble. First, 
Anxiety is common in patients with significant medical problems, just as it is in trauma patients. COPD patients, for example, experience anxiety attacks three times more often than the general population. The safest practice is to assume that tachypnea is related to the underlying disease process rather than anxiety. Second, even healthy young patients may have a medical condition for hyperventilation. Skipping a thorough assessment could miss important clues to a medical or traumatic condition. Likewise, oxygen saturation is a vital sign with great value in not only assessing but also following the progress of a patient with acute respiratory distress. Since pulse oximetry is now included in the EMS educational standards at the EMT level, there's no reason why an EMS response unit shouldn't carry and use a pulse oximeter. From the introduction of pulse oximetry into EMS some 30 years ago, it has saved many lives and provided early detection of hypoxemia in countless patients. Prior to the availability of pulse oximetry, EMS providers, like their hospital colleagues, often relied on cyanosis as a clinical indicator for hypoxemia. Unfortunately, obvious cyanosis isn't typically seen in a healthy person until their oxygen saturation drops below 67%. And even this value is highly variable in patients with low hemoglobin concentrations, poor circulation, or darker skin pigmentation. Today, cyanosis is considered not only a highly unreliable sign of hypoxemia, but a very late one as well. Like over-reliance on respiratory rate, pulse oximetry has its pitfalls. There are two significant limitations on pulse oximetry. The first is the tendency to confuse oxygenation with ventilation. The second is an inability with conventional pulse oximetry to account for abnormal hemoglobins, such as carboxyhemoglobin, as seen in carbon monoxide poisoning, methemoglobin, and sulfamoglobin all of which may be mistaken for oxyhemoglobin or otherwise interfere with accurate pulse oximetry readings. Newer generation pulse oximeters using multiple wavelengths of light can accurately identify carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin in the blood, eliminating erroneous assessments in carbon monoxide or methemoglobin poisoned patients. Pulse oximetry has been invaluable to the anesthesia profession as a patient assessment and monitoring tool transitioning anesthesia from a medical specialty with the largest number of lawsuits for adverse respiratory events to one of the least likely to be sued. There can be no argument against the assertion that hypoxia is bad for patients. Failure to detect hypoxia when it occurs will cause providers to invariably miss the window of opportunity to intervene appropriately, often with catastrophic consequences for the patient. That said, EMS is becoming more informed that the drug providers use most, oxygen, isn't as safe as previously believed. Pulse oximetry is an incredibly valuable monitoring tool for patients with acute respiratory distress. It allows a provider to administer oxygen only when needed, carefully titrating to avoid patient harm from too much oxygen. Lastly, when pulse oximetry is used to monitor a patient in respiratory distress, and saturations are normal, 94 to 98%, desaturation is a warning of decompensation. The past practice of routinely giving oxygen to every patient in respiratory distress did little to alleviate their difficulty breathing and, in patients who were not hypoxic, effectively masked deterioration that would have been seen in a falling oxygen saturation. 
Capnography is also a valuable assessment and monitoring tool in acute respiratory distress. Although it's included in EMT training, capnography has traditionally been an ALS tool. Capnography provides excellent confirmation and continuous monitoring of respiratory rate. Waveform analysis can suggest bronchospasm and airway obstruction and can also quantify the effectiveness of treatment. The measured intidal carbon dioxide, ETCO2 value, provides helpful insight into the need for ventilation assistance and is an excellent feedback tool for titrating continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, or positive airway ventilation. One caution regarding capnography is the influence of cardiac output. Decreasing cardiac output is reflected as a falling intidal CO2. Failure to account for changes in cardiac output can lead to misinterpretation of the ETCO2 value. Patient treatment. The following three assessment questions direct patient treatment. One, is the airway patent? Two, how adequate is breathing? Three, is oxygenation sufficient? Airway patency. This is reflected by unobstructed flow. Abnormal breath sounds often point to the obstruction. Listening over the neck focuses on the upper airway. Snoring indicates obstruction of the airway, usually by the tongue. Inspiratory strider suggests obstruction above the vocal cords, such as a foreign body or epiglottis. Expiratory strider often comes from below the cords, as in croup or a deeper foreign body. Coarse lung sounds, formerly called Ronchi generally result from secretions in the airway. Wheezing suggests flow restrictions below the level of the trachea, whereas crackles or rails indicate presence of fluid or atelotaxis at the alveolar level. Simple interventions can lead to marked improvement. For example, a nasopharyngeal airway, NPA, often eliminates snoring. Nasotracheal suctioning of accumulated secretion often a soft flexible catheter clears coarse sounding lungs. Administration of an inhaled bronchodilator significantly reduces wheezing. Adequacy of breathing. This is perhaps the most difficult assessment in patients with acute respiratory distress, and unfortunately, failure to recognize inadequate breathing will likely lead to cardiopulmonary arrest. The three signs of impending respiratory arrest mentioned earlier are late signs, as in bradycardia. Decreasing heart rate in any patient should be a red flag for you to assess their breathing. WOB assessment ties directly in with the adequacy of breathing. If breathing is inadequate, ventilation must be provided without delay. Ventilation can be non-invasive or invasive. Non-invasive, also called non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, NIPPV, refers to ventilatory support provided through the patient's upper airway, usually using a mask, such as a bag valve mask, BVM, or CPAP unit. Invasive ventilation involves bypassing the upper airway with an endotracheal tube, supraglottic airway, i.e. laryngeal mask airway or laryngeal tube, or tracheostomy. When a patient has problems with both their airway and breathing, invasive ventilation is reasonable and appropriate. In cases where the airway is patent, yet breathing is becoming inadequate, a trial of non-invasive ventilation is warranted, and may offer a multitude of benefits for both patient and provider. CPAP is the most often used pre-hospital non-invasive ventilation device aside from BVM. CPAP is appropriate for nearly all patients who have a patent airway with inadequate breathing with the exception of those who are apneic or have low respiratory rates, typically less than eight breaths per minute for adults. 
It's also an excellent tool for patients who appear to be tiring from excessive work of breathing. Some patients are known to respond favorably to non-invasive ventilation. This includes those who are younger, are able to cooperate, have minimal air leak from the mask, have ETCO2 between 45 and 92 milligrams of mercury, and show early improvement in respiratory rate, heart rate, and oxygenation with CPAP. Use of CPAP requires familiarity with the equipment, obtaining a good mask seal, coaching and reassuring the patient, and titrating the pressure for effectiveness. All patients on CPAP should be sitting at least 30 degrees upright. CPAP is associated with significantly less complications compared to invasive ventilation. This includes fewer intensive care admissions, shorter hospital length of stay, fewer cases of pneumonia, better oxygenation, and lower mortality rates. There's no standard approach to initiating non-invasive ventilation. Experts recommend starting CPAP at 8 to 12 centimeters of water pressure and gradually increasing the pressure up to 20 centimeters as required based on respiratory rate, patient comfort, and oxygen saturation. Capnography is also helpful for monitoring the effects of CPAP and should demonstrate a decrease in ETCO2 when optimal pressures are achieved. ETCO2 can also be used to wean CPAP. The most common complication associated with CPAP is facial trauma from the tightly fitted mask. BVM ventilation is another means of non-invasive ventilation. The ability to provide bag valve mask ventilation to a conscious patient requires practice and skill. The best way to learn how to track and assist the ventilations of a spontaneously breathing patient is to practice on another EMS provider. A benefit of BVM ventilation is the ability to quickly discover if a patient will tolerate non-invasive ventilation, and if so, whether there's improvement in their respiratory distress, heart rate, saturation, and WOB. Deciding to use invasive ventilation is risky but completely warranted in some patients. Candidates for invasive ventilation include patients whose airway patency can't be restored using conventional methods. This is especially true in those with trauma and or unmanageable secretions and patients who are apneic. Additionally, patients who fail a trial of non-invasive ventilation are also candidates for invasive ventilation. Regardless of which type of advanced airway device is used, it's important to have continuous waveform capnography attached to any invasive airway inserted in a patient. In the uncontrolled and often chaotic EMS environment, the only way to assure that an invasive airway is patent and the patient is being properly ventilated is with continuous waveform capnography. Sufficient oxygen. Hypoxia, the lack of sufficient oxygen in the body, may result from an airway problem or poor ventilation, or a patient may have an intact airway with good breathing but poor oxygenation. In situations requiring airway management and or ventilation, oxygen saturations often increase when the airway is cleared and ventilation improves. In some cases, hypoxia may be an isolated problem. Given what we know about the dangers of hyperoxia, the approach to correcting hypoxia mandates careful titration of oxygen, ideally to maintain saturations of 94 to 98%. With only a nasal cannula and a non-rebreather mask, an EMS provider may find themselves lacking in ability to deliver moderate levels of oxygen. Hence, the newest EMS educational standards have reintroduced a variety of oxygen delivery devices, including the simple face mask, partial rebreather mask, venturi masks, tracheostomy masks, and humidifiers. 
These tools are necessary to deliver the right percentage of oxygen to maintain saturation in the 94 to 98% range. Although high-flow nasal cannula devices aren't yet ready for field use, hospitals have employed them since the mid-1990s to deliver heated and humidified oxygen at flows up to 60 liters per minute to patients with significant hypoxia. At these high flow rates, high-flow nasal cannula devices deliver low-level pressure to the airway, slightly resembling the pressures delivered with CPAP. In fact, high-flow nasal cannula devices have all but replaced the nasal CPAP device previously used on premature babies and neonates with respiratory distress syndrome. Despite the higher flows, heating and humidification of the oxygen makes high-flow nasal cannula therapy tolerable, if not comfortable, for patients. Summary. Acute respiratory distress is a common and often serious emergency. Good patient outcomes require rapid and skilled assessment of the airway, breathing, and oxygenation. The ability to assess worker breathing and knowing when and how to intervene before a patient with acute respiratory distress tires will enhance your ability to care for this challenging complaint.